Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. You're listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today we've gone underground um, to visit the home of Growing Underground, which is a fabulous, relatively new organisation that actually grows plants underground in disuse tunnels, but more of that in a moment. Um, And today's programme is the second in our series around Sustainable Development Goal 11, which is Sustainable Cities, and I'm delighted to be joined in this slightly echoey, what was I suppose a tunnel, or a bit of a tunnel, by Alex Gilbert. Alex, welcome. Hello. Um, Richard Ballard, who is the CEO of Growing Underground. Well, no, I'm, he's saying I'm, no, he's looking frightened. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm one of the co-founders. Co-founder, yeah. co-founder, very much more democratic. And Faye Thompson, um, who's got a fabulous new start-up called District Eating. Faye, welcome. Thank you. And we're going to talk about the whole philosophy of, of growing locally, um, perhaps even hyper-locally, but also using waste resources to create something that we need every day, which is food. But Alex, can I start with you? Just just tell me about how you've kind of connected with this project because you're part of the glue in this conversation, really, aren't you? Absolutely, and thanks, and great to be back on the show. Um, so I've, I guess from a headline topic, um, I spend a lot of my time now investing and advising on food-related businesses as well as energy and green property. Food, I think, is always just the most fascinating aspect because it's one of those few things that unite everybody. We all have to eat pretty much several times a day and it has that amazing potential to unite people equally cause conflict and everything else and it probably encompasses more than anything else the challenges of what we would probably call in this room you know, sort of decent modern healthy living in that you've got all of the triple bottom line you've got the social the environmental the economic every time you have a, a bite to eat you have those factors you're impacting many people in a supply chain across the world so I've always been fascinated by it um, I've been aware of this project for years, although it's the first time today hopefully coming underground and, and seeing what's uh, what's going on. Um, I also work uh, at TfL, which you know, and, and obviously TfL is involved as the, as the landlord of this, but I'm suppose, very, very keen to hear today more about what's happening here and obviously from, from Faye as well and to see um, how it all stacks up. Great, thank you. So Richard, can we kick off with, with you? How did it start and, and, and why really? So this, uh, hi, thank you very much Amanda for having me on. Um, so this all started back in 2012. Uh, myself and my business partner Steve, um, we, uh, we've we been friends since we were uh, at school when we were about 11 years old. We've kept in touch over the years, both going in our different directions. Uh, I started a, um, a garden furniture business quite early in my 20s. I did it for about 10 years, based in Bristol, importing uh, garden furniture from Southeast Asia. Um, this actually really got me in, interested in the whole uh, sustainability, really, because that uh, led me to look about traceability of supply, uh, the source of timber that I was, I was bringing in. One of the first companies to bring in an FSE-certified teak wood back in the early days. So um, that business, unfortunately, was or, or fortunately, uh, was pushed into liquidation uh, in 2008. In the, People don't usually say fortunately about getting <laughs> exactly. grants, but <laughs> no. But it was uh, it, in hindsight, it was a it, it, it's, it's turned out okay. And um, the, the the business was forced into liquidation in 2008 under the, the financial crash. 
I had a bit of a midlife crisis, as you do, and uh, I moved to London to embark on a, a film degree, which is something I really wanted to do when I was younger. And um, when I arrived in the capital, I was fascinated with what was going on uh, underneath the streets of London. Um, a lot of history with London and also Crossroads was being built at the time. Um, and um, I started to look at this for an idea for a film for, for, my, for my course. Um, as well as that, I was very interested with what was going on above ground, the future of cities, um, you know, the Shard and various other buildings were being built yeah. at that time. Um, and all of this just uh, fascinated me how futures of this, cities of the future are going to feed and power themselves. Um, and this led me to, um, to make a film for my final thesis at the end of the course, which was about how we're going to feed and power future cities. You know, the UN were coming out with figures at the time that 80% of us will live in cities in the next 20 to 30 years and um, the um, there's going to be an extra 2 billion people on the planet in the next 20 or 30 years so this led me to uh, research and read and I came up uh, came across a guy called Jeremy Rifkin in the States who came up with the concept of the third industrial revolution um, um, the democratization it's about the democratization of energy this idea really resonated with me and um, it's about um, to cut a long story short, every building, buildings being one of the main uh, contributors to CO2, um, mm. um, farming the second and transport the third, and looking at f- those buildings producing their energy, feeding into a smart grid and using that energy efficiently. Um, and this really sort of resonated with me. And uh, I, so I, I said about making a film about that, but I also researched a guy also from the States called Dixon Despomier who... Um, came up with the concept of the vertical farm. Um, sort of, he's the the grandfather of of this uh, industry. And, he started, and the vertical farm is when you're kind of growing things on the sides of buildings, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, his concept was actually um, because this was a, this idea came up and came about in the early noughties with a class at Columbia University that he was uh, lecturing, and he they were this was before before LEDs really yeah. were in, invented, but it was all about building or using. Um, skyscrapers or um, unused vertical blocks to grow produce or use them as a farm. So it could be using mirrors to reflect. Um, at the time, you probably had high-pressure sodium lights that you could use, mm. but LEDs weren't around. And then, obviously, the technology changed very soon after that. LEDs became available, and then that really added to this vertical farm concept. Is that like a kind of productive green wall? Because a lot of people talk about when they talk about urban planning and landscape. We, we had some, some folk on the pod few months back talking about you know re-greening the urban landscape and people talk about just having green walls which is really just hanging decorative green plants on the side of buildings isn't it is that the same <laughs> sort of idea well, he, he was al- he was also looking i mean he was looking at food production for yeah, the cities, so feeding cities but but the, what he was looking at was using waste products within cities so we have okay. an excess of co2 from uh, various um, uh, industries using that co2 to grow plants which obviously helps grow plants also wastewater you can potentially use wastewater in a hydroponic system we don't but you could use gray water um, and then the transpiration of plants lets uh, is pure water so yeah. there's probably some concept that it's not around at the moment but that it was looking at waste products that would potentially um, be using for a positive impact that that actually in turn um, uh, that class or that idea inspired a generation of architectural students that came up with the concept of a vertical farm the visuals mm. that you see online these renders of very modern and uh, futuristic uh, buildings which look great and then that then inspired a generation like us to 
get involved in vertical farming. And, and so Hollywood's and loss is the urban farming movement's gain, really, I suppose, isn't it? Exactly, you know? yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. There is still, there, yeah, Clapham's game, there is still time for the Oscar. But that's really interesting. So what you've done is you've taken what was effectively a redundant space, have you? Because we can hear a little bit in the background, the noise of the tube. So your actual growing space is an old tube tunnel, is Yeah, it? so it's a, it's a World War Two air raid shelter. It's... Um, there's, there's seven of them, there's a deep level shelter and there's seven of them across London from Belsize Park in the north all the way through to Clapham South. They're all underneath Northern Line stations because the plan was, and they're all built um, in a long linear line like a, uh, a tube line because they have this amazing foresight when they build, built these tunnels they thought ah, if we you know get through the other side we can use that space or that construction for um, uh, an express northern line. So the, the plan was to have this express northern line that travelled from north and south into central London. That so it's it, like a parallel set of tunnels running yeah, alongside exactly. the northern line? four on the south and three on the north. Oh, so, it's a serious psychogeographer territory here, this, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask on that, had we just abandoned the people living east and west? Because I was aware of that, but I didn't realise there were no other tunnels. Um, what about the good folk of east and west <laughs> London? Uh, well... Uh, Sacrifices have to be made. Yeah, <laughs> abandon them. I think there was initially uh, somebody told me from from TFL that um, um, Churchill's wife was one of the key sort of uh, instigators of getting these built. Um, and there were some other built. Uh, there was another one underneath um, uh, the Kingsway Tunnel, which is um, I think that was actually used as a that was sort of classified and top secret until the 90s there were other ones built but um but these were designed to house about 8,000 people each they built them um so they're 1940. big and they're deep they're deep and they're long yeah they're so they're about 65,000 square feet of space 6,000 square meters uh, two long linear tunnels they're round like tube stations um five meter diameter with a, a mezzanine floor a concrete mezzanine floor through the middle which creates two levels and then you would have had bunk beds two to three high on each level um, and um, uh, and we now uh, have re- we didn't replace the beds the beds were taken out some time ago um, but we've re- replaced that with a uh, a bed for uh, feeding Londoners as opposed to protecting them you know during the war so that's amazing I mean even that in itself that's that piece of London history that most of us probably wouldn't know and, and to, to, were they actually used as shelters? Were people actually sleeping there? Yeah, so um, next door at Clapham South was famously used by um, migrants. Uh, uh, sorry, initially it was used during the war, um, and they had up to 12,000 people at one stage. Uh, and then they were famously used by migrants coming over on the, on the Windrush um, uh, from, from the Caribbean. Oh, so, uh, And then they were also used by servicemen travelling through the capital on the way out to various posts um so they have been used since but then uh, a, a lot of them were not used after the war tfl inherited them in the 1990s and then they started to try and find a commercial use for them and they were used for paper and document storage mm-hmm. and a lot of that now is moving out of, of london this one was actually a paper and document storage for for a time so and at the moment you've just got the one you've just got the yes. one set of tunnels yeah okay that's absolutely fascinating but it's this kind of idea of not knowing that there's these opportunities, you know, in the city, isn't it? And until you encounter them, you know, in some way that either for in your in your case a sort of chance or fluke or, or you know artistic endeavour, and actually having an opportunity to create something out of nothing. That's what's so exciting about this kind of old, well, it's not an alternative movement, is it? But this sense of kind of a, a new movement of new possibilities. And I think the same for you, isn't it, Faye? Because you've you your life story that is different has brought together some of your interests in the way that Richards did to create something equally 
unusual <laughs> but potentially hugely productive <laughs> yeah yeah so I, um, I come from a farming background a traditional dairy farming background in Yorkshire um, all my family still do that and I still live on the family farm my auntie and uncle's farm so I see every day the old way of doing things um, however you know they, they do it with the best one in the world you know they're trying to feed people but they're nearly 70 now and it's a, it's a new world and and um, we need to do things differently. So I I um, went to university and got an engineering degree, and I'm an energy and environmental engineer. And I I always wanted to do renewable energy. At the time, I just wanted to do windmills and solar panels, because uh, when I graduated, that was that was the big thing. Um, but what happened was I, I ended up getting involved with renewable heat, and. When I my first graduate job, I ended up working on um, district heating development up in the on the west coast of Scotland in Oban, and um, from there I, I spent I spent good six seven years working in Scotland on the west coast and then down in Glasgow. I did all sorts of things. I did I went to a lot of factories and um, I did resource efficiency audits. So I looked at how much waste they were producing and how much water and energy they were using, and how they could save how they could well produce less waste and how they could save energy and water and the key part of that is always doing a cost benefit analysis you know it'll cost you this much to change this part of your process and it will pay back in this much time and that's what I've just always done my whole career over and over and over again any investment in energy efficiency has to have a a good cost benefit analysis and district heating development was always something over the last 10 years it's really um, it's really grown the district heating energy in the UK. Some people might not know what district heating is, so if they don't yeah. know, just, just in a kind of nutshell, what does that actually mean? Okay, so a, a district <coughs> heating network is a central heating system for a city or a town. So in your house, where you'd have a gas boiler attached to radiators, in a city, you might have um, a heat source, some kind of heat source. Often it, it's a combined heat and power plant, like a little mini power station, and the hot water that's a byproduct from that then gets pumped into underground pipes that then feed buildings so you might have a hospital on there um, a swimming pool you might have blocks of flats you might have um, yeah, a, a shopping centre and the good thing about these systems is that at the, at the moment we're using a lot of gas to heat our homes and that's that that's true also for district heat networks but we're this is slowly starting to change and hopefully the rate of change will speed up <laughs> and we'll see a lot more uh, things like heat pumps being plugged into the district heat network so by building these networks we're setting ourselves up for a low carbon um, future for heat and so what you don't often see on district heat networks is greenhouses and that's what i want to change because I've been obsessed with gardening and growing vegetables most of my life. I love it. That's what I do when I go home and at the end of the day I go in my garden. Um, And being from the farm, I'm very aware of food production. And um, so at at work, um, over the the last decade, and I've seen all this waste heat available in factories on the one hand and in in district heat networks on the other. I I won't go into the technical reasons as to why because it gets a bit technical, but there are are quite a lot of good technical and economic reasons why it would make sense to have a greenhouse on a district heat network, Um, largely around the fact that they can take low temperature water and compared to a building anyway, 
and they use heat most of the time. They don't close for the weekend and they don't finish at five o'clock like an office Mm. or a school. Um, So I kind of caught on to this and the idea has grown and grown and grown over the years and and, um, last year I was like, I'm going to do this. (laughs) So exciting because you're not quite as far down the track, are you, Mm. Richard? So you're more at the start-up stage with with your business. That's right. That very similar principle of taking something that's effectively a waste product, whether it's a space or a heat system, and making it into something productive for the purposes of growing food. And what will you grow? Because are you going to grow tomatoes or vegetables I'm not going to grow personally no I, I know where my strengths lie and um, <laughs> what will district eating grow <laughs> we're going to be um, district eating are going to be facilitators so oh, okay. in my my world of work you know I, I come across heat sources all the time and I, I know how to find the heat sources and I know how to speak the language of um, I know how to talk to, to people who are running factories and operating district heat networks I understand where their priorities lie and I understand where they need help and how a greenhouse can help them and then there's on the other side of it I feel like I'm a bridge you know on one side there's the waste heat operators and on the other side there are the growers oh okay so you're going to facilitate the connection between those two yeah absolutely yeah and it could be that down the line maybe I will end up growing myself I would like to but at the moment I'm going to stick with what what I know and what what I'm good at Um, yes I'm going to be the bridge between the facilitator interesting and do you have heat in your system we uh, we don't actually Um, so we um, where what makes this work for for us is that we are underground we have a consistent constant temperature of about 15 degrees whether it's you know minus four outside or uh, 30 degrees Um, it does change a little bit at the bottom of the the stairs as you go down where the air comes in but it finds its sort of equilibrium and and most of the tunnel is a, is a, const, a consistent temperature um, as well as producing uh, heat, uh, light our leds produce some heat so um, that enables the temperature to get to um, well as well as using ventilation at both ends of the tunnel and air movement within the tunnel uh, we can control and get that perfect temperature that we need temperature humidity CO2 to some extent and an air velocity um, and the crops we grow like between between 20 and 25 degrees so it works very well for that sort of temperature so we don't have any additional heating for that. And what are you growing? What kind of stuff's down there? So uh, we, we grow um, pea shoots, um, coriander, uh, salad rocket, garlic chive, um, um, mustards, several varieties of mustards, all to the micro level. So we're we're growing micro herbs that, that are um, so we use a lot of seed, but um, but we produce a very um, flavoursome salad with a lot of uh, um, taste. I mean, they're very rich in in flavour and, and nutrient because they're they're a small seed. Okay. And you're now, if I may jump in for a moment, you were saying earlier now selling to some pretty serious customers as well. Yeah, so we supply now into Marks and Spencer's, Waitrose, Ocado. Um, um, Planet Organic and um, and Waitrose, uh, sorry, and um, Whole Foods in the in, all within London. So um, it's uh, and, and there's some online companies like Farm Drop and uh, New Covent Garden Market, which is just a mile down the road from here. And that was uh, another you know, good uh, reason for this site. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's you know very close by, so we can reduce food miles. So the crops we grow predominantly grow. Uh, or come into the UK or somewhere in the northern hemisphere from somewhere like Israel or 
Egypt out of season, so and they're flown in. Um, we um, so we reduce food miles from that. We also reduce some pollution um, and distribution models within the city. So um, yeah, so it's quite it's something I suppose putting the investor hat on again. It's always trying with all these concepts to understand which ones are sort of local <laughs> community, maybe just communal, as in benefit to the community, but small scale kind of cottage industry concepts which have their place and are fantastic, but perhaps can only ever remain at that stage and which of these are scalable and can reach and, and address some of the, the major issues we're having in the in the world today. So I suppose perhaps a, it's a question for, for both. Um, how how scalable can that go? I mean, is, is the future to grow more here and in these tunnels? Is it to go and acquire other tunnels around yeah, London? So our, our, our plan is to scale up in this tunnel and, um, and, and branch this out into other tunnels within London and other spaces. But it doesn't have to be tunnels. It could be warehouses and it could be um, anywhere where there is a heat source. And, um, mm-hmm. and um, I think uh, me and Fair will be talking after this because uh, there's definitely a... Um, you know, something we could we could look at together uh, in the future, and it's uh, yeah, it's about producing. One of the big um, inputs of of, of uh, into this industry is, is energy, um, labour, um, and um, so so. But with sort of exponential growth in technology, at the moment LEDs are um, you know quite early in their stages, but they're they're, they're very efficient. Um, but they will become much more efficient, and you'll start looking at having lights where or recipes for lights which will be using the spectrum and, and the energy very efficient much more efficiently than we are already um, and the technology will improve for the systems that we're using which will make it more uh, be able to grow much more efficiently the um, with uh, robotics and artificial intelligence obviously that will also uh, you know kick in with the the, the labor side of things as well so um, yeah so the plan is for us to expand into other locations. When we launched back in 2014 uh, to a crowdfunding campaign, um, we we got a lot of press from all over the world, and that uh, we were offered spaces from salt mines to uh, nuclear bunkers. Uh, it's, it's amazing how much underground space there There's is available. There's a huge right amount yeah. of underground yeah. space, and particularly in the UK because we just <coughs> love a tunnel. I can see that you know micro salads are fabulous, and I can see given the you know the types of distribution you were talking about, but they're a kind of high end crop, aren't they? Really? Yeah. Is there potential to grow anything that's a bit more you know every day? Can I use that word? Yeah, yeah. The, um, I mean, the currently um, the microgreens work, and we started with that. This is a you know we're a commercial business, um, and we've um, we've created not only just. Um, to grow something in a sort of innovative way with the, that's got an interesting story, it's actually a really good product, and nobody's actually doing a microgreen salad. So we're quite we're first to market with that. So that's one thing. But the um, the the plan of our scale and moving forward, we hope in the next few years we'll be doing baby leaf, uh, like full range of baby leaf, heads of lettuce, lettuce, uh, soft fruits. Um, and other vegetables and you know who knows in the future in the next 10 to 20 years as this uh, exponential growth in technology we could find ourselves doing um, you know staples wheat soy maize this mm-hmm. this is a possibility and you know the, the benefits to society uh, I think this isn't going to just overtake conventional farming there is always going to be a place for the way we do things at the moment but they're going to work very uh, you know side by side but in the future the benefits of that you know when we're getting reports from the UN that say we've got 40 
between 40 to 60 years of yeah. harvest left due to soil degradation. Um, this will allow current um, threatened land to re- replenish and go back to its natural form, especially places like, um, um, you know, the the uh, forest, like the Amazon forest, you know, where a lot of the land has been taken for soy uh, cultivation. So, that- well, in the UK too. I mean, you know, yeah. the idea that those kind of, you know, there's large farms that perhaps not sustainable, or, or you know, the family, you know, getting old don't want to farm anymore. You could actually put that back to a rewilded environment, which would then replenish the soil, wouldn't it? Yeah. And allow people to use that space differently for recreation and other things. When we do intensive food production, because yours is more efficient in terms of numbers of crops you know cycle isn't it you get more yields over <coughs> yeah. the way you grow yeah for the crops we grow at the moment yeah, yeah. so yeah we can get um, and would that be the same with bigger crops I mean if you're growing yeah, you I mean, larger lettuces or so broccoli, it's broccoli. about I mean the whole idea of whether you're growing in a tunnel or in a warehouse above ground it's about controlled environment agriculture it's maximising and, and getting that perfect um, environment for growing that type of crop and then you can turn that around as quickly as possible and do that consistently year round um, an example I always give is for one of our crops is pea shoots uh, which is something we can grow very easily um, we um, if you were to grow them in the northern hemisphere in soil above ground you probably get 6 or 12 harvests a year because a lot of the year is quite cold in, in the northern hemisphere in a, just a, a normal greenhouse you probably get 25 to 30 but in a controlled environment greenhouse or a controlled environment um uh, warehouse you would get uh, or in our tunnel you get 60 harvests a year so it's 60 uh, yeah so it really increases that um, amount that you can do so. so on the subject of greenhouses to Faye I'm guessing with the amount of waste heat we've got which I suppose we should say we're all we all are aware there's an enormous amount of waste heat still from industrial commercial other processes I'm guessing the potential is absolutely vast if you connected that with food production yeah yeah absolutely it's um, the viability of it always comes down again to um, cost-benefit analysis, return on investment, but absolutely, and um, I, I think we're going to be starting on some of the larger projects to begin with, uh, energy from waste plants, that kind of thing, where there's megawatts and megawatts of waste heat at high temperature, and we can work with commercial clients on that. However, to, one of my ambitions is to be able to create growing spaces for some of these um community gardening groups, community supported agriculture groups that at the moment are growing outdoors and so their season is limited by the, by winter basically, they can't grow in the winter very well so if they had indoor growing space these guys could really take off, you know they could start supplying hospitals and schools and they could have um, people from the community could be helping, working, learning new skills. So this is this is a, an ambition for my business. This is something that I really want to be pushing through once. And that's absolutely time. essential, isn't it? Not just mm-hmm. in terms of the economic benefit with providing jobs and things, but also the idea that we're reconnecting with a means of production and we're moving away from that mass-produced farm, factory-farmed food, and we're actually connecting with 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 growing and, and eating in a much more sustainable way, which has got to be better for our diets as well as being better for the planet. And people care more when they feel like they've got a stake in something, don't yeah. they? Like they feel like they own part of this. You know, they're, they're taking part in it. They're having fun doing yeah. it as well. Yeah. You, know, you can see this in every, every community-supported agriculture scheme in the UK now. Every community garden, you go there and there's a lot of happy people around. <laughs> it's one yeah, of those things that really does connect people it's a fascinating thing and there's been so many studies on this hasn't there of taking sort of kids out of the inner city and and that bizarre sort of human connection that you run soil through your hand or you 
take a, an egg from a chicken or something, and there's something clearly deep evolutionarily oh, that yes. connects there. Yeah, absolutely. That, that maybe some children wouldn't be aware. I know with my own kids, when we stayed on farms, that thing of sort of feeding the chickens and collecting the eggs, oh, that's where they come from. And, right, and children are more likely to actually eat products that they've grown. So there's a school, there was an interview, um, or a, a talk that I saw from a, a teacher in North London, and she was saying about they created a, a, a greenhouse, but in the school, the, the children grew some tomatoes. Normally they didn't like tomatoes, but after they grew them, they were eating them. So it really inspires them to try and broaden their diet and you know eat something more healthy. Of course, well, so. and, and we're so so many kids are so divorced from the actual process of food production, aren't they? Not just from the process of cooking, I and mean, you know, and actually understanding where food has come from. You know, whether it's plant based or animal based food, that actually trying to reconnect them with that cycle is incredibly important. Definitely. Well, I think I was in my TFL. Uh, day the other day looking at uh, biodiversity through London as we look at renewable energy and it was commented to me that for many people you have to be very careful when you take away tree lines around tubing because that might be the only green that anyone sees from you know home to work and through school and everything if you, if you take that away they literally won't see a tree which is pretty scary mm-hmm. and again it's that very, uh, I guess, dystopian future of everyone living in that sort of concrete jungle mm-hmm. and us losing the concept and taking kids out and you put them in a field or sort of running through the wheat fields image <laughs> they're coming for. But and that, and somehow they stay off the politics, <laughs> yeah. No, we're not going there. Um, but that, that deep, there is something that deep human, it's one of the eight intelligences that they're often talked about that environmental intelligence that you that we all have innately, but perhaps people could go their whole lives without it ever coming to the fore because if you live and work in a city why would you worry about farming yeah and Richard you talked about cities but those are going to, they're not just going to be cities they're going to be mega cities aren't they I mean they're huge urban conurbations not yeah. just you know lots of sort of Bristol sized cities but you know Rio de Janeiro sized cities that, that the, the population of the future are going to be living in yeah exactly I mean with you know predictions of an extra 2 billion people it's not just the the space within cities it's the 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 agricultural land and the land yeah. required to feed those people that really just goes out and affects the environment. So we've got to think about doing things a little bit differently. So I wanted to think about biodiversity, and I'm really glad you brought that up. It's just, presumably in the tunnels, and hopefully we're going to have a look in them in a minute. There is no there's no insect life, so there's no biodiversity from that sense. No, so um, we. Um, Everything within the, the farm pretty much is inert. Uh, you know, we are um, growing beds for, you know, steel um, uh, trays for holding everything in. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a concrete, it's, it's already shaped like a polytunnel, so it okay. works really well for, you know, what we're trying to achieve. Um, and then... Um, so there's no we, pollination issue. I mean, they don't need <coughs> to pollinate these crops. They just they just grow from seed. Yeah. So we, I mean, we bring the seed in. That's the only thing that obviously isn't. You know, and we um, and we um, we soak that in water. So we get a, a sort of an even germination, um, and then we um, um, sow the seed onto a, a mat, which is a, a recycled carpet, and um, that goes onto a, a, a bed, a growing bed. Um, if, sorry, first it's in propagation for several days. And that goes into the actual farm under lights, and then within anything from five to twelve days under lights, and then it's ready to be harvested. So, if you were growing other crops, would there be an issue there about you know needing? I mean, to any form of kind of I suppose there wouldn't be, but there, you don't need to pollinate properly. Um, no, I mean the next crops we'll be looking at baby leaf. 
uh, heads of lettuce, we wouldn't need to. Um, the LEDs we use, um, they uh, come from a company called Valoya, who are based in Finland, and they've um, they've used they've developed a light spectrum that bees can navigate in. So they, bees can't generally navigate under that sort of light. So that enables them to navigate and pollinate if you were to do something like tomatoes. Or so further down the line, you could actually have insects down there too. You could have hives and things. And yeah, I mean that that that's uh, uh, that's that is a possibility with certain in the future. But um, yeah, we're not we're not looking at that at the moment. But yeah, there's because yeah. uh, I went to a similar scheme. What you're growing on. Yeah, a similar scheme in Iceland where they have they heat the greenhouses using the geothermal byproduct, which is also the hot water that comes out of this spring, so it's free. But they have to bring in um, hives of bees or little kind of cardboard hives of bees at a regular basis because they grow tomatoes um, to pollinate tomatoes. So, but obviously they had a very short life, but they're fantastic. So you're in this glass house, which is just warm 24-7 <laughs> growing these tomatoes and there's kind of snow outside, so it's an extraordinary experience. But they're bringing in that wildlife, and that's going to be really important. We can't lose that. So we're not envisioning, envisioning in a future where we've only got our crops grown underground, have we? We've oh, no, got to get no, a balance. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, that reminds me of um, the world of, of renewable energy. There's no one-size-fits-all, there's no one silver bullet, and the key, I think, to all of this, energy and food, it's, it's, um, it's resilience and it's having diversity. Lots of different ways of doing things, you know, and then if, if something doesn't work with that, you've got other things to fall back on. I think it's... Um, I think it's really important to we need to throw everything at this we've got a really big challenge ahead haven't we we've got a lot of people to feed and climate change and I'm seeing on the farm all every day every year the weather gets a bit stranger and every year the, the inputs required to get those crops produced you know that we need more slug pellets need more sprays more fertilizer more this more that you know we've got to do lots of different things but I think growing undercover is is key and um and these insect yeah. populations need they need help as well. So you know, maybe Richard doesn't need them in growing underground, but in other places like Thanet Earth in Kent, like they have mm. lots of bees there. They have mm. lots and lots of bees. Like yeah. That's ninety hectares of glass house yeah. in Kent. Yeah. Well maybe that's what we're doing. We're just recalibrating, aren't we? So we're using waste space and heat to grow the food and then we're giving back the land to the insects and the birds and plants. And when we had our pod at, at, uh, at Nepa State where they'd done just that, they'd stopped production. It's amazing how quickly all that nature comes back and how we rewild our spaces. We could talk for hours, but I'm really keen to go and have a look at your shoots growing under underground. So we're going to have to draw it to a close. Thank you so much. A huge thank you, Richard, Faye and Alex, as always, for being here on Planet Pod. Um, and we're going to get some photographs that we'll put up on the website so people can see it in action. Thank you. Thanks thank you. Thank you. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.